Hey friends, welcome to my podcast, Midlife Plot Twists. I'm your host, Lucy Baber. In this podcast, we explore all of the totally unexpected ways life seems to change as we inch closer to midlife. Most of our episodes are geared toward women in their late 30s to early 50s, and we talk about things like relationships and sudden career changes, making space for new life goals, making peace with the past, and coming to terms with all that weird stuff that happens to our bodies as we get older. I hope you'll finish each episode feeling inspired, informed, and empowered. I'm so excited that you've tuned in, and don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss a single episode of Midlife Plot Twists. So let's get started. Hey everyone, this is Lucy and you are listening to my new podcast, Midlife Plot Twists. Today I'm super excited to be interviewing my dear friend, Madi Carmen Farmer. She is a midwife here at a hospital in Philadelphia. I met Maddie a few years ago now. Her husband volunteered for my photo project, 100 Black Dads, and it was love at first sight. <laughs> we hit it off right away. And um, since then, it doesn't even feel like we needed that initial connection because it feels like she's just kind of in the air in Philadelphia. And we've found so many other lovely connections and mutual friends and um, I just, I, she is such an inspiring person and she's such a joy to talk with. So today I'm going to be talking to her about some of her midlife plot twists and um, also just kind of talking about her career and her family and all of the cool things going on in her life. So welcome, Madi. How are you today? Thank you. I'm good. Thanks. <laughs> a little tired, but good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about yourself. So I am, um, as you mentioned, a midwife in Philadelphia. I'm not originally from Philly. I'm from North Jersey. I'm a first generation Latinx woman. My parents are from Dominican Republic and Spain. Um, and my first language is Spanish. I am married to a black man, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, and we have three kids and they are uh, adults now, so we are empty nesters also. <laughs> <laughs> and we went to school in Philly and fell in love in Philly and decided to stay here. So um, we love living here. Have been working in reproductive health since um, 2000. I have a degree originally in sociology and anthropology and did social justice work and then started working in different facets of um, reproductive health care knowing that my end goal was to become a midwife um, because I see midwifery as kind of the intersection of social justice and medicine. Um, so it's amazing to finally be doing this work. I've been a midwife for um, four years and currently I am the president of the local uh, midwifery professional group called the Philly Metro Midwives, which is um, which is one of the things that brings me great joy these days. That's amazing. Yeah, I didn't even it. know half of that. <laughs> Thank yeah. you for telling me that. <laughs> of course. So you've been you've been uh, working as a midwife for the past four years. Tell me a little bit about more about what you were doing prior to that and how you made that decision to finally take the plunge and what that process was like for you. Mm -hmm. Sure. So um, I 
like I mentioned, was a social and anthro degree. That's what I pursued when in my 20s and mm -hmm. very unexpectedly got pregnant in college um, and um, decided to continue the pregnancy. And it was very hard. Mm. I had very little social support. Someone kind of put me on the path to go get care from midwives. And the way that they cared for us, for me and my now husband and our baby just sort of, I don't know, it just changed me in a way that um, really made an impact. And I decided right then and there when I was 22 that I wanted to do that work someday. But we were busy raising a family. We had another child a few years later and then um, a third child who turned out to be actually quite sick and um, her care and sort of loving on her took all of our time mm. for the next three and a half years um, until she sadly passed away in 2004. Mm. So um, I took some years to grieve um, and help my kids grieve and to like explore other things in maternal health. So I became a doula and a childbirth educator. Um, I spent a lot of time around midwives, you know, just trying to get to see what they do and how they got to where they are um, and just developed relationships that became very important mentor relationships, which I feel so lucky to have had and did all kinds of stuff, um, public health kinds of stuff and activism. Um, and eventually once my kids were um, in middle school and high school decided that it was time to go to nursing school. And so that was kind of the beginning of the formal, the second part of my formal education. And so I did that mm. um, being uh, my, my baby girl, the one who, who we lost, her name was Kayla. And being her mom, we had nurses in every like corner of our life. Mm -hmm. And so I was really excited to become a nurse and to have the kind of impact on other people that nurses had had on us. So I ended up loving nursing much more than I expected. And instead of working for two years and going to midwifery school, I ended up working for five years um, as a nurse before I headed back to school. Uh, that decision was pretty organic. I basically decided... I was going to keep working as a nurse until I felt like my learning curve had slowed down and mm. that I was like really ready to, that I had learned not everything I could learn, but um, a great deal of what I wanted to learn and really learn like the art of bedside nursing. Um, and then I, and then I was ready and I, you know, I decided at 22, I wanted to become a midwife and I started midwifery school at 40 three or 44, I think just shy of my 44th birthday. So 22 years. Wow. I to a long, long time. Yeah. Um, but it was well worth it. You know, I, I was a different person, obviously, by the time I went to middle high school. So, and I never looked back after that. You know, I worked as a nurse the whole time in school. And then um, when I graduated, that was it. I started working as a midwife. I love that. I have so many different thoughts that I want to talk about all at once. <laughs> so I'm going to try to uh, only tug at one string at a time. So it sounds to me that the transition and, and really transformation into midwife and also like the level of um, professional advancement that you've made in addition to that with the, the president statuses um, in the organization, like that wasn't so much as of a plot twist as much as it was kind of 
a journey, Mm -hmm. but also, you know, like I, I would imagine most people, maybe this is too much of an assumption, but most people don't think of the trajectory of their life as starting a new thing in their mid forties. So Mm -hmm. how did that process feel for you? Was it an easy transition? Did it, did it feel organic every step of the way? Were there plot twists along the way that caught you off guard? So one of the things that I really struggled with over the course of all of those years was just knowing when, when to make the next step. Mm -hmm. I knew where I wanted to end up, but I also knew that, you know, my kids needed me and my husband needed me and I had other interests. And so it was very, you know, I was constantly sort of questioning my timing. Like, is this the right time? Is this the right time? And I, I would sort of get a sense that it wouldn't be. And then I would get very impatient. Like, when is this going to happen, you know, Mm. for me? So I tried really hard to fill my life with, um, like I mentioned earlier, with people who encouraged me and kept saying to me, like, that could see the vision that I saw and that kept reminding me like, you know, when I first started going to events with midwives, they would be like, Oh, and the one non midwife in the room is, you know, Mari. And like, Mm -hmm. here she is again. And by the end of the 20 years, they were saying like, you are a midwife. You just Mm -hmm. have to go get your credentials, you know, (laughs) like, um, so like, you know, over time, I think that having the encouragement of, that community made a huge, huge difference for me and allowed me not to think that I was crazy, you know, myself. (laughs) Um, And I think, you know, it was hard. I knew I was going to be the oldest person in the class or I suspected I would be. And I was by quite a bit, uh, maybe six or seven years. And which, you know, is a role I'm pretty comfortable in. Like I'm a mom and I'm the oldest sister. And so that was kind of like a natural, you know, thing to be the nurturer, but it was hard. I didn't, sleep very much. Um, I had two <laughs> jobs and I, you know, was in school full time. And so, yeah, it was really hard, but I, um, by the point, by the time I got to midwifery school, there was no question for me that I was going to become a midwife and I just had to push through. And so I was very lucky to have the support of my family, you know, that they, they were willing to sort of go without me Um, because that's what it required for me to kind of dive in um, that way. But um, yeah, I think it was definitely worth it. I mean, my whole family, meaning my kids and my husband, are as invested in me becoming a midwife as I was, because it was literally like their whole life they've been hearing, you know, mommy wants to be a midwife. So (laughs) so, I don't know. I, I really believe that like a lot of the timing stuff is just you or me taking a step and feeling out like, is this door open right now or not? And if it's not, then like turning my attention to other things and just trusting that the door will open and that I'll know when that is. Um, And it's very um, intuitive Mm. in a way that I think is hard to explain. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. It almost to me, I'm, I'm like envisioning, like when you walk out into like really shallow water, like in a creek mm-hmm. or something, mm-hmm. and maybe you're having to step on like rocks that are kind of standing above the water so you can get your footing. And sometimes those rocks are a little shaky and you have to mm-hmm. kind of like reposition or like exactly. find a new path. Um, mm-hmm. That's really, I like that. That, that makes a lot of sense to me. And especially, um, when you have the 
kind of wisdom and hindsight of um, that comes with age, I think mm -hmm. you can you can make those steps a little bit more sure-footedly because you you felt what it feels like before when it's really really unsteady. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. Like what uh, what if you can recall any of them? Like what moments really felt like you thought it was time? You went looking. You tried to take that step, and maybe like the universe sent you the message. Like nope, not yet. So I can I can remember like for midwifery school specifically going to, I knew that I was probably going to go to Penn, that we wouldn't move out of Philly and that that would be the program I would um, pursue. And so I would go there to the admissions, uh, the director of admissions and meet with her mm -hmm. and say like, I'm not sure, maybe this year. And she would lay out like a course of study for me. And then I would, you know, write to her again and say, well, no, not this year, not yet. And mm -hmm. I did this, I think eight times. <laughs> like eight years in That's a row. So much patience for that yeah. director. To and <laughs> and she, when I said to her, you know, if I th I think it's time, and she just looked at me like she had her little like reading glasses perched down <laughs> on her nose, and she looked at me like over her glasses, and she said, "Are you sure?" <laughs> and I said, "Yeah, I'm sure." And she was like, "Are you?" <laughs> she she didn't believe me. <laughs> I remember like a lot of micro moments where I just got impatient. I just wanted to see the realization of what I could see in my head. Mm -hmm. um, but I did learn over time to trust, just to trust the process because every time that I would pull back, you know, that I would realize, Oh no, it's not time. Then it became obvious to me why, you know, what, who yeah. needed me or what, you know, we went through a lot as a family. We lost my sister-in-law to a three-year battle with cancer where we were mm -hmm. her primary caregivers. And so mm -hmm. there's no way I could have gone to school during that whole thing. And so, um, and there were just, you know, other things to do. And in the meantime, like on the positive end, um, there was like experience to be had and adventures to, you know, experience that would make my life richer and also... I think ultimately make me a better midwife. So um, there's a, can I read a quote that I really love that really helped me? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Okay. So this is by um, a German philosopher. I don't even know how to pronounce his name. I think it's Goth. It's okay. G-O-E-T-H-E. Yeah. And it says, until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness concerning all acts of initiative and creation. But there is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans, that the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issues from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance, which no man could have dreamed would have come his way. Whatever you can do or dream you can do, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. Begin it now. And so I love that quote. Like I have it framed where I can see it because I think it is all about taking a step. Um, and like I love, you know, what he says about all kinds of things will happen that you you couldn't have anticipated um to help you along your way and that is absolutely my story i mean that's just 
that's just really, really true um, in ways that, you know, I could, I could like, we could talk for hours about all the ways <laughs> that like, that like, you know, things have fallen together in, in ways I couldn't have anticipated initially. So that's beautiful. I, yeah. It also, it really um, speaks to me in the past couple of years, I've been really um, learning and growing and embracing this idea of like manifestation. Mm-hmm. And I don't know whether or not that word resonates with you but I feel Mm -hmm. like even if you would not say it doesn't like Mm -hmm. that I see that a lot in you as just a personality um so talk does that does that resonate and like is that does that feel like an important part of your life and if so tell me like do you feel like this was um a thought that you manifested or do you believe that the universe was working kind of more outside of that? I I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, I think that um, I'm definitely like a vision kind of person. I see things way before they actually come to pass in my Mm. head. And I've come to try, I'm kind of, you know, creative like you. I mean, I think it's one of those things that we can connect over. So Mm -hmm. um, I think that um, I have learned to trust that the thing that is inside of me has value and can come to pass externally because it's easy to feel a little bit crazy. Like you have this picture (laughs) in your head, you know, nobody else can really see it, but you're so committed to it. Like you can really see it so clearly. Mm -hmm. And, but I, um, so I think, yes, part of it is that and holding onto that vision and just sort of like sticking by that and trusting it. One of the, the symbols that's been really important to me over the course of my life um, has been, um, or, or my adult life, has been a labyrinth. A labyrinth is like a path that looks like a maze. Sometimes it's in the form of a spiral, mm-hmm. but it doesn't have any dead ends. It's just one path. Yep. So you en- enter and you follow it and it eventually gets to the middle where you're looking to go. And then um, you can like pause there or you know reflect there and then you can work your way back out, which unto itself is a, is another journey, you know? Um, and that symbol has just really, really spoken to me since I first gave birth, I was introduced to that. And it's this idea of like trusting where you are in the process and trusting that there is the end that you anticipate, you know, is coming. And no matter how far you might be from where that end is, um, that if you just keep putting one foot in front of the other and trusting the process that you're going to get there. I think we all need a labyrinth for 2020. The year I 2020. Agree. <laughs> I agree. I've been thinking about it a lot. And mm-hmm. I've been thinking that, especially in this pandemic and the season of like civil unrest and where things at times feel so hopeless, mm-hmm. that it's really important to ground yourself in this idea that, um, to just trust the process and trust the, the path that you're on and not to get um, distracted or, or distraught along the way to find ways to stay like present in that and grounded in that so you can continue to do what you need to do. Um, it's hard. I'm, you know, I, I'm, I struggle with it too, but, but it is kind of a, it's been a little bit of a North Star for me to think about that and to see um, that image 
I actually this year bought a piece of art that that is a labyrinth. Somebody um, made it, and and it's just like a very cool story how I found her. But in a, in any case, I just had it framed and picked it up today. So oh. I'm super excited to hang it up. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, yeah. I love that kind of stuff. Like how yeah. how the energy that that small acts like that can bring into your life. Just having mm-hmm. something so symbolic visible mm-hmm. to you day mm-hmm. in and day out. I kind of, okay. So let me step back a minute and I know you and I have, I'm sure discussed this, or maybe you've inferred if we haven't explicitly mm-hmm. said it, I had both of my babies at uh, the birth center in Bryn Mawr. Mm-hmm. So having relationships with midwives was also very important to me through the birthing process. And I, I could sit and talk about childbirth and labor and how amazing the entire process is for just days on end. But I'm curious if you, you mentioned that you, that you got kind of introduced to the idea of a labyrinth during your first birthing mm-hmm. process. Do you, is that a tool that um, you used in labor? And also is that a tool that you use with other women when they're in labor, like, tell me, let's just talk about birth for a little bit. Mm, I love to just get into it. Yeah. Great. I'm always happy to talk about birth. Um, (laughs) So it is actually a tool that I use postpartum to process the events of my labor and birth. Um, Like I mentioned, this was like a crisis pregnancy and, and the labor was not easy. It was, it was a pretty hard um, way to go. And I did end up, um, with a vaginal delivery, which I was, you know, very grateful for, but it was, um, hard fought. Mm. And, um, and, you know, a few years after that birth, I, um, started working as a, as a birth worker, as a doula and, and getting trained. And my first introduction to birth work was around this symbol of a labyrinth. Mm. And, um, so it was a very, like, inter, um, a very, intense intersection of the personal and the professional Mm -hmm. because right away it spoke to me about kind of the unresolved things I had inside of me around the way my own birth had gone and the um, disappointment and kind of like lack of um, support that I felt and so not from my midwives but just in general Mm -hmm. you know in my life at that time so it really helped me and so then I I have absolutely used it I mean not just with birthing women, but with my classmates in midwifery school, with my midwifery colleagues now with, I mean, I, people know me as like someone who always has a labyrinth somewhere. (laughs) There's one in my car, like hanging from the mirror. People, people know that as like something that they associate with me. Um, Just a very powerful um, symbol for me. So, um, but the concept I use with birthing women all the time, this idea of, or birthing people, I should say, um, mm-hmm. this idea of letting go, um, of, of first exploring what's most important to you around the process of childbirth and the experience of childbirth. When you, you know, this idea of having a vision of closing your eyes and feeling like, this is what I want it to feel like, or this is what I want it to look like, or this is who I need to be in this space and so identifying what those priorities are those like very intimate like must-haves and then from there learning to let go of the things that you cannot control Mm -hmm. um and and knowing that you have these like 
touchstones, these things that you know are very important that you're going to like, you know, that are going to guide your decision-making through the process. Um, Mm. But that the process itself is going to unfold as it's going to unfold. And you are going to do the next best thing at each point in that process. um, Because that's all you can do. Labor is like the most present focus thing I know of on earth. Like, you know, like it, I feel like when people say, make a statement, like, I became a woman when I had my child. I, mm-hmm. I don't even know if people say mm-hmm. that. But like when they say that, you hear, oh, like I, I uh, was able to handle pain or mm-hmm. I learned what it means to love another person. But really what it was for me was like, I learned who I am. Like mm-hmm. I, I stretched what I thought was possible for my mm-hmm. capacity to tolerate and mm-hmm. go inward. And I, I really just met myself through the birthing yeah. process. Um, and yeah, like, I'm thinking about like, even just the visual of a labyrinth within each contraction is mm-hmm. that's exactly like you're you, like when you're in a hospital setting and you're up hooked up to monitors and stuff, you can watch the, like the, valleys and peaks of each contraction on the monitor and that's a cool thing to be able to do but really it does it did feel like more of an inward spiral to me than a peak in a valley through each contraction like I and um, I was super invested in um, hypnotherapy Um, Mm -hmm. not necessarily hypnobirthing which Mm -hmm. uh, there's slightly different approaches but I was at that point in my life my, my oldest just turned 10 uh, hypnotherapy was a big part of my life and and that kind of like going into a trance like state i always kind of envisioned walking down basement steps <laughs> like when i was like kind of going down mm-hmm. into trance i would imagine myself walking mm-hmm. down these basement steps and it feels very much like this like spiral of going more and more inward and you you meet yourself at the bottom and you spend a little bit of a time there during the hardest part of the pain and then as you feel it start to release you can kind of like spiral back up to like Mm -hmm. the the earthly plane where all the people Mm -hmm. are and I I yeah I love that kind of visual and just the journey of birth in itself it's like just being able to tell yourself it might feel like an eternity because these 12 24 36 48 hours Mm -hmm. are never ending right now but like it does end eventually and it being able to like ends. keep that in mind through it is what gets you through. Yeah. I I totally agree. I think I also love the labyrinth as a symbol of pregnancy and then postpartum like mm. pregnancy being the way in and postpartum being the way out. Because like you say, you said like you felt like you met yourself and I think mm-hmm. many many people feel that way. Um and then themselves you know changes so much once they become a parent and Mm -hmm. that then like, what does that even mean? Like, who am I now? And Mm -hmm. so um, going through that process of redefinition or reintegration is the way out from the middle um, back to yourself. And I, um, I found, I find that to be so true. Um, And so that, that those like lessons of staying present and being mindful and just um, trusting that like, there's a saying that sometimes we use in birth, everything is, is as it should be right now, you know, Mm. like in this moment, everything is as it should be. And so that's hard to embrace that in each moment. But like you said, it all ends, each contraction ends, the birth eventually ends, 
you know, the period of pregnancy ends, like all those things come to an end and then you're moving on to the next thing. I love that, that visual of the, even just the pregnancy and postpartum. I wish mm-hmm. you could have told me that 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I wish someone had like used that mm-hmm. because, and maybe I was, maybe I did hear it and I just didn't have the mm-hmm. capacity to hear it, hear it. But I hated pregnancy. I would tell mm-hmm. anybody, like I would 10 times rather do labor and childbirth than the actual pregnancy. And I didn't even have hard pregnancies. I just disliked it. But maybe if I had taken a step back to be able to embrace both sides of the change Mm -hmm. and not just like feel so antsy for the end, I think that that's a really powerful tool to be able to talk through people with. So thank Mm -hmm. you for, for embracing your calling as a midwife so that you can keep helping people realize that. Mm-hmm. So the idea of being a midwife is bigger uh, as a, as a word, it's a lot bigger than just uh, childbirth. You can be a, like midwife is just kind of a welcoming of, or like an ushering in of like mm-hmm. something new. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I was struck as I heard you speak maybe in the very beginning of this interview about, um, I know you've been very um, open and vulnerable about the loss of your daughter. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm curious to know if you have thoughts around like what it means to be a midwife for birth and what it means to like there, I know that there are people who kind of like even call themselves like a, like a death mm-hmm. midwife, or mm-hmm. I don't even know if that's the right phrase, but mm-hmm. how do you pair that? And how, tell me about your experiences surrounding like beginnings and endings when it mm-hmm. comes to this idea of like ushering in the new, in addition to um, your own journey and how with your career specifically, how you have had to mourn the loss of one thing in order to usher in the next thing. Maybe that's a really giant question. I apologize if that's too big. That's okay. That's okay. I'll just pick out certain things. Yeah. So um, yeah, I think that um, most of my adult life has been a lesson in um, how to, in seeing the parallels between life and death and mm. the, um, again, back to the labyrinth, like that um, death is just another labyrinth as well. Mm. I've had to usher a few, not just my daughter, but my sister-in-law and one mm-hmm. of my closest mentors, you know, to the end of their life. And it's taught me a great deal about how to live and also how to die. And I think that one of the things I'm really grateful for is that because of those experiences and, and that kind of immersion in, in that experience, um, I have had the opportunity to let those experiences enrich me. I think that um, as a society, we're pretty afraid of death and yeah. we don't we don't allow it to to impact us the way that it could and i don't mean just like by making us sad but i mean like there's so much to learn from the process of dying and from the process of letting go and from the process of grieving someone and i say this as someone who's you know like experienced a great deal of pain from from those losses but also someone that feels like uh, much more whole because of that pain, much more mm. like I feel much 
I guess the word would be much wiser because of it. You know, I, yeah. I lost my daughter when I was 33 mm-hmm. and I, I often felt like an 80 year old woman, like mm-hmm. in terms of like the perspective that I had on life um, was just very different than my peers. Um, because you do learn like certain truths about how life works and what's really important and, and the role of suffering and, sadness in bringing about kind of beauty and wholeness in our life. Mm. Um, and I, people who know me and who read um, my writing and that kind of thing know that I often refer to my youngest daughter as um, one of my teachers, mm. because I think that watching her life and watching her death um, taught me and continues to teach me so much about um, what it means to live and how to live. Um, so, yeah, I think one of the gifts of, of that is that I just don't uh, allow, like, there is definitely a prioritization of what's going to get to me, you know, mm. that, like there, are, it's just so much, so obvious to me what matters and what doesn't matter. And so it's easy to let go of things that don't matter or not invest time or energy into them um, when you go through something like what we went through with our kid. So that's a gift, you know, because I, I really don't waste time on things that don't matter to me um, very much, or I don't at least waste much time on it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. I imagine that anybody who hasn't met you that's listening to this will pick up on this immediately um, just by hearing you speak. But um, I have always felt such a warmth and presence and like attentiveness in whenever we're together and whenever we speak. And I, I think that that is, I'm sure that you were a very warm and lovely person prior to these major life Mm -hmm. events. But Mm -hmm. I I also imagine that that probably amplified that in you. Like I I can tell anybody who spends time with you can tell that like you are intentional with your time and with your attention and that, matters, especially when you're working with such a vulnerable population as mm-hmm. women who are at their most, most vulnerable, welcoming new children into their lives. Yeah, totally. And I think um, to your original question about like the role of midwifery in death, I think that the skills that it takes to help someone usher a new life are the same skills that it takes to help someone um, let go of life. They're like, literally the just opposite sides of the same process. Um, and so, yeah, there are, there are end of life doulas and there are end of life midwives. And I have always imagined that maybe that might be a direction that my work might take someday. I did spend five years working as a nurse um, on the special delivery unit at CHOP, which mm. is a, a unit where mothers with prenatally diagnosed fetal anomalies will Mm. come to give birth. Some of those families come because their kid can get the medical care they need either in utero or right after birth. Mm -hmm. But some of those um, families, a a good number of them come to have an end of life experience that's meaningful. Mm. And so it was a place where I felt I had something to contribute. Um, And it was definitely like 
a, just a direct gift from that experience of, of losing a child. And so I, I had to reckon with how I was going to do that work and separate my personal experience, but also integrate my personal experience. And it was just a, a really incredible opportunity. I had to work in bereavement and end of life care. Um, and I, I would not be surprised if I end up going back to that at some point. Um, it's a place I feel very much at home that, that doing that kind of work, because like I said earlier, we, we flinch from death and I, I don't really flinch from death because it's been such an intimate part of my life. Mm. Um, so I think that's some, something I can give, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Oh, there's still so many things I want to talk to you about, but I, I do want to kind of make sure that I'm addressing the point of my podcast, <laughs> not just sitting around talking about life and death and all these amazing, incredible things with you. But specifically, my podcast is not only aimed at talking about all these gigantic uh, life topics and how life throws curveballs at you along the way. Um, but it's also for intended for women who are kind of staring down 40 or even 50. Um, mm -hmm. And what does that decade mean to mm -hmm. us? Because mm -hmm. at least in my life, I feel like there hasn't been a lot of conversation around that decade for to me from mm -hmm. women who are a little bit older or maybe much older. And so I'm curious to hear, uh, I, I, I'm probably going to end up saying this on every single episode, just because not everyone knows how old anyone is. Um, mm -hmm. I'm 38 right now. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I've been really trying to explore on a personal level, like what, what, what does this decade look like for people? How, like, what's all the good, the bad, the in between. So tell me about your forties. How have you enjoyed mm -hmm. it? What, what, um, felt, or I'm not even going to prompt, like, what did that feel like? How, how are you feeling today about your age and your body and your career and your position in life? Like, was it what you expected? Um, so I'm 49. So I'm just at the end of my forties. Okay. I have really enjoyed my forties. I feel like, um, it's the, the decade where I've come to know myself um, mm. better than any other decade. And it's also the decade where I've come to, um, I am sort of at rest at baseline, a, a people pleaser. And mm. I've come to become less of a people pleaser for the first time in my life um, mm. and just um, care to a lesser degree what other people think as long as I am fulfilling kind of this, the vision that's in my head and serving um, the ideals and the priorities that I've set for my life. So trying to be more, have more integrity around the things that I've identified are important to me, as opposed mm. to allowing things to pull me away because other people deem them important. So I think that's hard for people that, that like to be liked and mm. that like to be seen as nice. Um, mm. And so, but I've become increasingly less tolerant of, of, of things that don't line up with how I want to spend my time or how I choose to make a mark in the world. Um, yeah. So, and I think what that does also is that it frees up 
like there are other people who should be doing those things. And so if you're trying to be all things to all people, then you're actually blocking other people from finding what their purpose is and what their mission is. And I think about that a lot when I walk away from opportunities or say no to something that really in my act of saying no is an act of um, allowing someone else to say yes and find exactly just the thing for them. Oh, um, I love that. Have uh, I don't mean to interrupt, but have you read the book Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert? Um, I, I've read some of it. Yeah, pieces <laughs> of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's amazing. It's, it's amazing. I, mm-hmm. I will probably talk about it every episode also. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. It's not for everybody. It is mm-hmm. a little out there for some people. But mm-hmm. I, I was struck by her idea that as creatives, as artists, as mm-hmm. just people in the world, we kind of get visited by an idea or Mm -hmm. inspiration Mm -hmm. and we can choose whether or not to embrace that and like kind of follow up on it. Or sometimes we have to let those things go. Either life forces you to say not yet or not today Mm -hmm. or not ever, or just like you lose that passion over time. And in her kind of belief system around this, she kind of said, and it's okay to let ideas go. You don't have to do all the things because mm-hmm. that idea can go and visit other people. And mm-hmm. the, the main goal is to just like that idea just wants to be born kind of, and you don't have to be the bearer of every single idea that enters into yeah. your head. That was like the most freeing concept to me as somebody who is constantly daydreaming and mm-hmm coming up with big ideas and I want to do all the things, but like we only have so many hours in a day and we also have to deal with other parts of our lives. And so Mm -hmm. being able to just kind of like let go of that and say, no, that's not for me today. And then to be able to say, and maybe somebody else can be blessed by that or Mm -hmm. pick up the reins there and, and can do a phenomenal job and feel great about themselves and their contribution. Like I I love that, that, pairing of those two ideas. It's really important, I think. And I think, um, you know, it's also about like joy. Like if you're, let's say in a job that doesn't bring you joy, that is drudgery and you go to work every day and you dread it, chances are that not only shouldn't you be there, but someone else should be there. And as long as you stay there, you are not only denying yourself joy, but you're also like blocking the door for someone else to you know, walk through it so that they can find exactly the thing that they were meant to do. And so um, I think, you know, we have a lot of guilt about letting go of opportunities or walking away from things, but that um, perspective has really helped me to to walk away from things um, when I need to, because it's true that there are other people out there who might be exactly meant for it. Um, And you could be giving them a gift by doing exactly that. Um, I love that. That's amazing. (laughs) That's fantastic. Did you feel prepared for your forties? Did you have like models of what a good, happy decade of your forties looked like in your Hmm. life going into it? Um, That's a good question. My parents were older. And so my mom was um, like a working mom in her Mm forties, which is what I am now. So I guess in that, in that way, I had that model. And I also have surrounded myself, as I've mentioned earlier, with a lot of mentors and a lot of my mentors are older than me. And so 
I have been able to see them go before me, so to speak. And um, they have been very, um, several of them, very transparent about what it's like to go through, let's say, marriage in your 40s or raising kids in your 40s or career changes in your 40s. So um, I kind of feel like I have actually have had models. And one of the things that was really interesting, this is a little bit of an aside to me, is that my um, going to midwifery school coincided with my empty nesting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah. for so long, I'd heard how awful becoming an empty nester is, how sad it is, how empty it is, how sort of void of purpose you become. Mm-hmm. That was not my experience at all. Like I was literally doing like the work I had dreamed of for 20 years. And yes. so now when I talk to my friends who are now, you know, I am a young mom. So most of my friends are still raising kids. Um, you know, they're not out of the house yet. Mm-hmm. And so I really strongly suggest to them to invest some time in thinking like, what is this going to mean for my next step? What is there something I want to do or be engaged in? Because not that I didn't miss my kids, but I, I saw it much more as um, the right next step for all of us. Like yeah. they were going to launch and do the thing that we raised them to do. And, and I was also going to launch and do the thing that I'd been waiting to do. Um, and so, I don't know, it was much more, it was just less fraught than I ever expected it to be the, that whole period of time. Yeah. Know? And I mean, really that, that phase was exactly when, we met. We like, met. I believe the mm-hmm. first time we mm-hmm. met, you were literally planning like three graduation parties. <laughs> Correct. That's exactly right. We um, all graduated at the same time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I have watched, you know, from afar, we're not like mm-hmm. besties or anything, but mm-hmm. you know, just from social media and, and mm-hmm. interacting with you over the years, I've watched you really embrace that, that process with an open hand. And mm-hmm. I, I see, I mean, you know, I gush about your kids all day. They're mm-hmm. amazing, but I, I really <laughs> truly believe that they are so amazing because you set them up to be that way. Like mm-hmm. you modeled to them what it means to embrace change and, and do big, scary things. As far as I can tell, both of your, your children have become world travelers already mm-hmm. and are leaders in every sense of the word. And I mean, we didn't even really touch on the social justice piece, but oh my goodness, they are doing so many meaningful things in regards to that. And I, I really believe that so much of that was um, born out of your modeling, how to go through life and experiencing all of the things with a, Mm -hmm. with a presence and like a, Mm -hmm. a being, being really present through that. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, just modeling that like life doesn't end at 40. Like you, you know, a lot, I think a lot of, a lot of parents that I've observed over the years, just kind of like pack it up and call it a day by the time their kids are in middle school and they're like coasting until retirement at that point. And instead your kids got to watch both of their parents keep reaching higher and higher and higher. And I think that made a big difference as far as I can tell, like they're, they, you, every time I talk to you, Daniel's doing something huge. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I know they're, they're amazing. Yeah, I think that's true. I think um, part of it goes back to Kayla. I think that Mm. her life being cut short so soon really 
made me realize that every, I mean, this is going to sound so cliche, Mm -hmm. but every day is a gift and that tomorrow is not promised. And so I feel like I have no choice, but to um, sort of wring out of each day, every drop that I can. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's one of the reasons that people ask me, you know, a lot, like, how can you do so many things or how can you do so much? And I sort of think like, how can I not? Mm. Um, like I've been given this time, however long it is. And she did not have that time. And she, my daughter, those of, you know, people who know her and who know her story, um, mm. she was very impactful. And the people that knew her and even people who didn't know her, strangers, um, mm. and she only lived to be three and a half. And so how much more can, should we and can we be, in terms of making an impact on the world, if we get to live four, five, six, nine decades of life, you know, there's no excuse. So I, I, that drives me, I think, um, from a like very deep place. And I think probably drives my kids too, you know? Yeah. So that has, that has made a big difference. So I'm excited. I, I love my birthdays. I love getting older. (laughs) I don't love like that I'm more tired or that my knees hurt or anything like that. But, but I just really revel in the time that I'm, that I have to like um, build my relationships and do the work that I love to do and get to know myself better and become more clear about what's important. You know, all of that. Um, You mentioned in the question originally, just like, how has it changed my relationship with my body? I think Mm -hmm. my forties has been like so good for that. Um, just for letting go of like a lot of the old stories I told myself about my weight and the way that I looked and, you know, my sort of approval that I sought from other people Mm. and just really learning to um, sort of meet my body where it is with its flaws and shortcomings and try to make it like the best, strongest body I can within the limits of the, the life that I have, you know? And, and be patient with it, which I never have been. Mm-hmm. So, but I'm, I'm learning for sure. So that's, that's been a gift too, I think, of my 40s. Not to feel like time is somehow, like if I don't do it in the next six months, then it's not going to happen or it's not possible. That's just not true. Yeah. It's just a, a perception thing. Um, yeah, yeah, so. absolutely. So on that note, mm-hmm. if you could go mm-hmm. back, what would you mm-hmm. tell younger you? What, what advice or just wisdom would you want to share? Um, I actually thought about this this year quite a bit because my son, our oldest, he turned 25. And, you know, no. the, oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, for me, 25 was like the year when I was a little kid. That was like, well, by 25, I'm going to be like married and have a house. And it was just like this sort of like magical age. (laughs) And um, 25 turned out to be really different. Like I didn't expect to have had a kid in college, take like a couple more years to finish my degree, Mm -hmm. um, not be originally I always thought my whole life I was going to be a vet. Turned out that's not what I wanted to be. I didn't figure (laughs) that out until like pretty late in the game. So not, you know, it just looked very different. Um, I was married and I did have a kid, but uh, not in that order. Mm-hmm. And and so I thought a lot about how was he at 25 versus how I, how was I at 25 in terms of how I um, accepted myself or loved myself versus mm-hmm. the way that he accepts his life and 
embraces kind of, you know, just the way it's turned out. And so I, what I would say to myself at that age is um, that you have time to figure it out. Like give yourself oh. grace, yes. you know, is like, it's going to be okay. Life is full of seasons. It's not um, a race to the finish. And like, you know, you have to be a thing, whatever that thing is, a midwife, a vet, a teacher, and then that's it. Sort of like you've reached the pinnacle and then life is over and then you just like pack it up. That's not how it works. That there's like so much, much time for all of your big ideas and all of the things that you love and that excite you. Um, and that there's time to make mistakes and figure them out and learn from them and do something different the next time. I think that's, that's what I would tell my younger self. I grew up so driven and ambitious and like on this like kind of one track to be quote successful yeah and life just didn't turn out that way it just didn't and I I really wouldn't change it for anything and I think that that thinking that line of thinking to be like always thinking about how things are going to turn out in the future you miss out on what's happening right now like yeah the gift of the everyday the gift of the the journey you know, the, the process of becoming who you are going to be. And so I think uh, I much prefer that, that kind of present perspective. And so that's what I would tell my, my younger self. I was like, it, it's okay. Kind of like everything is as it should be, you know, yeah. back to the birth thing yeah. um, and, and the whole labyrinth idea. Like oh, and you're going to be fine, you know? just be where you are right now. It's so hard to see that when you're, when your brain is in that mode, when you're young twenties, mm -hmm. especially. And I think that I definitely had a lot of mentors who tried to tell me those things. And mm -hmm. I was so restless and so mm -hmm. anxious for the next thing and so stubborn about it. I think if somebody had told me life is full of seasons when I was in my young twenties, mm -hmm. what I would hear then is so different than what I understand now, which is in the past, I probably heard that as like, well, yeah, I'm in the spring now, and then it's going to be summer, and then it's going to be right. fall, and then I'm going to die in the winter. And instead, it really is like cyclical seasons. Like, yes. it, we, like we can have another spring. This isn't mm -hmm. your last spring. This isn't mm -hmm. the last time that you can try something new. And, mm -hmm. um, and it's not going to happen in this linear fashion that you imagine, just because that was what might've been modeled to you by your own elders doesn't mean mm -hmm. that your life is going to follow that same path. And I, mm -hmm. I wish I could have absorbed that more fully. So I could have slowed down and just like embraced where I was. Totally. That's exactly what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So on that note, we didn't get to one of the things that both of us are so passionate about, and I <laughs> hate to try to squeeze it in at the last minute, but you briefly mentioned social justice and we briefly mm -hmm. acknowledged the year that is 2020 mm -hmm. and how wild this has been. Mm -hmm. um, maybe your answer will touch on those or maybe not, but um, I'm curious what you're working on next. What's been kind of mm -hmm. keeping you up at night thinking about your own trajectory from here and um mm -hmm. and just uh, i guess i ask it also from the perspective of knowing who you are and what's been happening in current events and mm -hmm. how passionate you are about social justice like what what are you feeling really driven to do even this fall are, are there projects mm -hmm. that you're working on related to um 
I don't know, the election or like we're yeah. recording we're we're recording the the day after Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away and so the internet is in deep mourning over that and mm-hmm. there's a lot there's a lot going on and how how have you been faring and what are you working on what are you imagining right now so one of the things that i've been trying to you know this season of like um violence against people of color especially black people and Mm. just the sort of unveiling of oppression which has been there for so long has been very emotionally um exhausting for me Mm. as somebody who identifies as a black and indigenous person and and is married to one and has children and parents and lineage and ancestry all tied into that narrative Mm. and it's been um, really a time for me, you know, back to that, like, give yourself grace to give myself the time to, to mourn how painful that is. Yeah. Um, but it's, but also one of the things that I do in my life, aside from midwifery, but I think it's very closely tied to being a midwife is um, I'm an anti-racism educator and have mm-hmm. been for, you know, 20 years. And so during the first during the election of 2016, um, I was in midwifery school. And one of the things that midwifery school did for me during, because it was during that season, is it really challenged me to think how to marry my skill sets and my passions around these two things to make a difference in the world. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's so easy to become, become hopeless and think it's like too big um, yeah. to tackle, which I hear all the time from people. And so the question that I ask myself and I ask other people to ask themselves is like, what is my sphere of influence? You know, where can I make a difference? Like we all have a place where we can make a difference, even if it's just literally in our own thoughts and belief systems, or if it's further out, if you see yourself as like, you know, kind of the center and then you make circles out from there um Mm. again back to the labyrinth um (laughs) where where can you you know how far out can you kind of shine your light or where is it where is there a place where you can have an impact and for me i know that i have a gift of of teaching that i am a gifted teacher and that i i can use that to help other people process their own stuff around race and racism so Mm. About four years ago, I started working on an initiative um, that has very slowly come to be born. And in the last, like, not even a year, it now has a name and hopefully eventually soon we'll have a a website and become more formal. But the name is Midwife y Maestra. Maestra means teacher in Spanish. It also Mm -hmm. means like conductor or organizer Mm. um like maestro you know Mm -hmm. um and so it's my way of like putting out what i know to do in the world which is to give people safe passage um to figure themselves out you know as a midwife and as an educator um and so leading workshops educational experiences retreats healing circles dealing with people's trauma educating people about the effects of racism and how to make the world um, a more anti-racist place. And so I have some collaborators. Um, I just like a week ago, maybe, I had my first very, very formal um, proposal 
accepted. Yeah. Which is really exciting. I've done lots of small informal ones, but the first time I really um, put it out as like this initiative that I'm doing. Um, so that's super exciting. It feels like I'm giving birth to something that's, that's I've been gestating for a, a very long time, <laughs> uh, much longer than you would gestate a human baby. Um, <laughs> Um, but it is also a manifestation of like a deep wish that I had that when I walked away from straight up social justice work, when I was, you know, still like in my early thirties, mm-hmm. that I, I would somehow find a way to bring that back um, into the the birth work that I was doing. And um, I've been doing that in small ways, but this is like the first time that I'm doing it very intentionally and formally. And um, so that's, very exciting and very rewarding for me. Um, So that's what's coming fall. So I've been lecturing to physicians and, you know, my my focus is mostly on healthcare providers. Um, Mm -hmm. I have a real interest in helping healthcare providers heal themselves. um, Because I think that a lot of the trauma that that they create or that the, the harm that they do comes from the harm that they experience themselves. Oh, Yes. So I I just have a deep belief about that. And I think that we ignore it. We ignore the pain of people who are healers. Um, They're just expected to keep going. And so I, I see myself as somebody who has capacity to work on that. And so um, that's, that's kind of my next thing, I think. That's huge. Um, And that's so necessary, especially right now with, with the frontline workers and, Mm -hmm. um, all of the trauma that is being created and and being mirrored by everywhere around us mm-hmm, and kind of mm-hmm. flashing back at us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm also curious to know if when you refer to um, healthcare workers, will that include mental health workers? And is that an area of passion or is that more like somebody else would be better serving that piece? Um, no, I, I am totally, I mean, I think that mental health is so crucial to our wellness as a society mm-hmm. and it, and such an underserved part of our society. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, I think it does include it. I, I, you know, I start like, again, back to that question, where can I have like the greatest influence? I start with my colleagues who are midwives, yeah. but I certainly have, um, gone further than that and certainly if people approach me I'm absolutely open to that you know I my like I mentioned at the beginning I lead this community of midwives which is really my way of saying thank you to all the people who helped me for the mm-hmm. 20 years get there um, and I'm leading my third retreat for that community in two weeks um, which is just like a total labor of love for me and I I really um just deeply enjoy leading this community. Um, it's so enriching for me, but I, um, I think midwives can be found in, in so many different environments and mm-hmm. we, we work with folks who do mental health work very closely. We can, we really couldn't do our jobs if we didn't have those people too. So yeah. no, it, it absolutely includes them. That's excellent. I'm mm-hmm. so excited to keep watching this grow and I know that we in the beginning before we started recording you said that you weren't here to promote anything in particular career wise Mm -hmm. Um, but certainly once your website is up and running Mm -hmm. we'll go back and add it that into the show notes so that people can keep following you because I I, there's such a need and I'm, I'm just so excited to watch this take off thank you
Yeah. So thank you so much. Like Mm -hmm. you're welcome. It was fun. I knew you were going to bring it and then you brought it Mm -hmm. times a billion. So (laughs) thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to this episode of midlife plot twists. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button and show some extra love by leaving a review. I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me on my website at lucybaberphotography.com or on Instagram at lucybaber. Thank you so much for joining me, and I can't wait to chat again soon. Until next time.